As you do, join me in prayer. What a joy to get to pray to our God and the wisdom that He has. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your unlimited wisdom. We thank You that we can rest in the wisdom of Your plan. Your plan not just for our individual lives and days, but for Your plan for all of creation. For Your plan for all of history. We rest in the wisdom of Your plan. We rest in the goodness and the grace and the mercy that You have shown us in Jesus. We are wholly undeserving of Your grace and Your mercy. We have done nothing to deserve the incredible kindness You have shown to us. And so we thank You for Jesus, our Savior, who died in our place, who rose victoriously from the grave so that we could be Your sons and Your daughters eternally. Thank You that if You're for us, who can be against us? Thank You that the One who started the work in us is the One who will complete the work. And so Lord, would You... Would you do this day's work in completing the work you started in us? And we pray as we come to your word that you would shape us, that you would fashion us, that you would humble us according to the truth of your word. God, I pray that your people in this room would have hearts ready and open and willing to embrace whatever you say. Lord, help us not to sinfully question and fight against Your truth, but help us to embrace it as true and as reality and allow us to conform ourselves to that truth. I ask You for Your help, God, to proclaim this text. I remember the beginning of this series, God, the prayer that I had was, I don't want to do this without You. And I say that again, Lord, I I don't want to proclaim this passage without your help, without your grace, without your intercession for me. And so I ask you, I plead with you, I am desperate for your help. I am desperate for you to give me the words, for you to give me the tone, for you to give me everything that I need to help these, your people, understand what you've said and to delight in what you've said and to apply it to their lives. Oh God, I love these people who are gathered here. I am so thankful for them. And I want nothing more than to serve them, to love them by communicating your truth from your word. And so speak to us now. We receive your word with humble hearts. And we do so in Jesus' great name. Amen. And amen. Go ahead and grab a Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you're a guest with us this morning, I also want to say welcome. So glad that you're here. Really glad that you're part of this, that you get to be here with us. As a church, we've been studying the book of Romans, a passage at a time, and we spent the last eight weeks studying, climbing the epic mountain of Romans chapter 8. And I don't want to leave Romans 8 too quickly, and so I've been praying that God would continue to use the good news of Romans 8 to mark us as a church. Pray that we would be known as a Romans 8 church, a people who are founded on that great truth that if God is for us, who can be against us? But now, we get to move to Romans chapter 9. And so let's consider Romans 9, 1 through 18 
this morning. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 9, beginning verse 1 of Romans chapter 9. What a joy to read God's truth over us. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the glorious breath of our God. May he shape us by its truth. Well, let me begin by addressing the elephant in the room, Romans 9. Is one of the most controversial chapters of Scripture because it teaches the controversial doctrine of election to salvation. Following on the heels of the great eight is what some people view as the serpentine nine. But what I want to convince you of today, no matter what your view of predestination or election, is that Romans 9 should better be known as the divine nine. This chapter is about God. God is the subject of Romans chapter 9. It is about God's ways and God's wonders. This chapter is about the absolute sovereign freedom of God to save His people. And this salvation, we learn, exists to bring God the greatest glory 
imaginable. That's what Romans 9 is about. And over the next few months, our plan is to walk through Romans 9 through 11 before we get to Christmas. These three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, are among the most difficult and complex in Scripture. A variety of opinions exist on these chapters, and we're planning to address those opinions, and we're planning to face what the text says head on. But what I do not want us to lose sight of in this study of Romans 9 through 11 is the glory of our God. Paul is zealous in these chapters to exalt God and defend God's faithfulness. In fact, let's begin our study of Romans 9 through 11 by looking at where Paul is heading. It's often helpful to keep the end in mind as we trek through something. And so look over at Romans 11, verses 36, 33 through 36. So this is where Paul is heading after explaining some of the deepest truths about God and about his plan to save his people, Paul breaks forth into doxology. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Notice the word unsearchable in verse 33. God's ways, God's judgments, Paul says, are unsearchable. That is, they are deep and they are high. And so as we study these chapters, we should keep this reality in mind. God's glory and salvation is greater than we can comprehend. We should expect to not understand perfectly all of God's ways and God's wonders. There is mystery in God's ways. There is paradox in the truth of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, both of which are taught in Romans 9-11. through Listen, if you think you have God and His ways perfectly figured out, you know more than the Apostle Paul did. If you think you have all of God's ways and wonders figured out, we should just pause our study of Romans and allow you to come and inform us of God and His ways. If you have God perfectly figured out, your response will not be to Him be glory forever. Your response will be to exalt yourself and put yourself as God's counselor. I don't know the mind of God perfectly. I don't understand fully His ways in salvation, but I don't also expect God to conform to my sense of right and wrong, my sense of fair and unfair. What I do have is the revealed truth of God, and on His Word I will stand no matter how it challenges my man-centered worldview. What God has said, whatever God has said, May it lead us, as it did for Paul, to worship. That's the goal of God communicating these wonders in Romans 9-11. through So let's bend our ear to God's Word. Let's submit to His divine truth whatever it is that God wants to, us to know, whatever it is God wants us to embrace. May we receive it with glad and humble hearts. The question of this passage that's bombarding Paul is in verse 6, Romans 9, 6. 
The question is, has the word of God failed? Has God's word failed? And I think the reason Paul is addressing this question is because Romans 8 ended with a loud crescendo of complete assurance. Since God is the one who saves us, our final glorification is as sure as if it had already happened, Paul says. Our salvation is guaranteed because nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus. But what Paul anticipates is an objection to this complete assurance. Paul imagines someone asking, hold on a second, Paul. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You say God loses none of those whom he decides to save, but what about the Jews? You say God never loses anyone that he gives salvation to. Well, what about the Jews? God called them, and yet most of them have rejected him. And so maybe God isn't true to his word. Maybe God doesn't keep his promises. Has the word of God failed? Has God disqualified himself by not keeping his word to Israel? And so the problem of the Jewish people's rejection of God's Messiah is of utmost importance to us. You ask, how does that apply to us today? Because if God cannot keep his promises to the Jews, then what makes us think he will keep his promises to us Gentiles? And so Paul asks, has the word of God failed? And what Paul does in this passage is he explains God's salvation a little bit more fully. He explains in this passage that what salvation does and does not depend upon. To answer the question of if the word of God has failed, Paul exalts in the ground our ultimate reason for our salvation. And I cannot imagine a topic more relevant for us today. If you claim to have salvation in Jesus, you should delight to know more about how that salvation came about and what it's based on, what it's ultimately there for, why it exists. And just to be clear, as we look at what God says in this passage, this passage does not say everything there is to say about salvation. There are other passages in the Bible that say other things about salvation. But what this passage does do is it helps us understand that ultimate reason, that ultimate ground of our salvation. And Paul says the ultimate ground of our salvation, the ultimate reason is the predestining, foreknowing, electing mercy of our God. So what does salvation depend upon? Here's what Paul's going to say. I'm going to list these out, and then we'll go one by one and look at them. Paul's going to say, it does not depend upon our ethnicity or privilege. It does not depend upon our works or moral goodness. It does depend upon God's mercy alone. And so let's consider how Paul develops these truths in this passage. Number one, salvation does not depend upon our ethnicity or privilege. Salvation does not depend upon our ethnicity or privilege. Now, the way Paul develops this particular point is shocking in this text. He is about to say something that is going to be perceived as negative toward the Jews. 
And so in the first five verses here of Romans 9, he goes to great lengths to reveal his heart for his kinsmen, the Jews. Notice he begins in verse 1 by swearing that he is speaking the truth in Christ. He's not lying. The Holy Spirit bears witness in his conscience that this is his true heart. And so verse 1 sort of serves to heighten the seriousness of what he's about to say. What is in Paul's heart? What is his heart? Look at verse 2. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So not just sorrow, not just anguish, but great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Do you see Paul's heart? He's not a cold theologian sitting in an ivory tower somewhere, disconnected from real life and real emotions and real feelings. No, Paul is deeply troubled. But what troubles him so much? Look at verse 3, 4. Here's the ground. Here's the, the because. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 3 is outrageous. This is outrageous. Paul is so burdened by the lostness of Israel that he says he wishes that he could take their damnation on himself. He literally says that he would be cut off from Jesus so that they could have his salvation. Now, friends, I've known a lot of people in my life who I would describe as having a burden for the lost. And by that, I mean they really want people to know the grace of God in Jesus, and their whole life shows it. But I've never met a person who was willing to be eternally condemned so that others might experience salvation. This kind of love, this kind of anguish is on another level. Now, the way Paul expresses this in verse 3 reveals that he knows it's not possible. He's saying, I know this isn't possible, but if it was... I'd trade places with them. Now, we know that a mere man cannot take someone else's condemnation. Only Jesus, the God-man, can take our condemnation so that we can have salvation. Paul knows that. He's the one who taught us that. But that doesn't stop him from considering the lengths he'd go to see his kinsmen saved by God. And then notice what he does in verses 4 and 5. He lists eight specific privileges and advantages that the Jews had in regards to salvation. In other words, he's saying they had a front row seat. They had a leg up on everybody else. They had all of God's dealings, His promises, His law, His worship, the patriarchs. Throughout history, they had all of these advantages. Paul even reminds us, notice in verse 5, that the Jews had the Messiah as one of their own. Jesus came as a Jew for the Jews. This is what we saw, remember, in Romans 1.16, where Paul says that salvation is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The Jews have been prioritized in God's plan of salvation. And notice in verse 5 that Paul calls Jesus God over all, blessed forever. This is a special and clear declaration of Jesus' deity and preeminence. Jesus is God over all, blessed forever. 
But the point is that the Jews had all of that. If any people had a reason to think their ethnicity saved them, it was the Jews. They had every advantage. And so if they had all of those privileges, why aren't they saved? Has God's word failed? And Paul is going to answer that question beginning in verse 6. And let's read verses 6 through 8 again because all of us are smart enough to see Paul's answer just by reading the text. Notice what he says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for, so here's the ground clause, because, why do we know the word of God has not failed? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul says the reason the Word of God has not failed is because salvation, being one of God's children is not based on your nationality. In other words, no one has ever been saved because they were born to Israel. No one. Not everyone who is Israel is Israel. This is very important because Paul is going to build on this through Romans 9-11. And so please hear this in verses 6-8. Do you see what Paul is saying? He is saying there are two Israels. There is ethnic, natural Israel, flesh Israel, And there is spiritual, true Israel. Israel of promise. Those two Israels. There's Israel by nationality, by ethnicity, and there's Israel by God's work. And the only people who are truly the children of God, Paul says, are spiritual Israel. And so Paul is saying that God's promises of salvation were not directly directed simply to those who were Jews. Rather, the promises were for God's chosen people, the the true Israel, the children of promise. And so the word of God has not failed. Why? Because God has kept his promises to true Israel. God's word has not failed because he has kept his promise to true Israel. And so may it never be that we would claim God's word has failed. Now, you see what Paul does? To prove his point, he gives some Old Testament examples. He starts with the Old Testament example of Isaac's birth. Abraham had two sons, right? Ishmael and Isaac. But Ishmael was not a child of promise. Ishmael was not Abraham's son spiritually. Isaac was. And this was owing to God's promise alone. He says it was promised that Isaac would be the one to be Abraham's seed. It was a promise given before Isaac was even born. And so Paul definitively declares that salvation has nothing to do with the family we are born into. No one has ever been saved because they are physically Jews or descended from Abraham. And this is a glorious truth for those of us who are not Jews. Salvation has never been by nationality or physical relation to Abraham. One nationality does not make one more acceptable to God than another. We must all be saved in the same way through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And I think one of the applications that we can make to this truth this morning right now is that we should relinquish any and all trust and privilege 
that we have been given. God may have used the family you were born into. You may look back and say, man, I'm so thankful that I had such a godly grandfather or father. I'm so thankful that my grandfather was a preacher or my daddy was an evangelist. Whatever it is, my family was charter members of that church. We have been Christians ever since I was born. No, you haven't. No one has ever been born into being a Christian. You have had privileges of hearing the gospel as an American that other countries don't have, but it's just that. It's just privilege, and that privilege does not save us. Our closeness to the gospel is not the ground of our salvation. It's not the reason that we have been saved. Listen, children and youth, I am so zealous for you to understand this point. I'm so zealous for you to understand this. Just by the very fact that you're here today means that you have been blessed by God beyond imagination. Like to be part of a church like this, to be part of a, of a family that wants you to hear the gospel, that brings you to church, is an incredible blessing from God. But in no way does it earn you favor with God. You can't trust in your parents' faith and your grandparents' faith. You can't trust in privileges or access that you've been given. We see these stories of Isaac and Ishmael, of Esau and Jacob here. You could be two kids born in the same family, one have salvation and one not. Privilege, access does not get you salvation. Salvation does not depend upon ethnicity, it does not depend upon privilege. That's the first part, point that Paul makes. And here's the second point that Paul makes about salvation. He says, salvation does not depend upon our works or moral goodness. So if salvation is not dependent on the family we're born into, then does it depend on who we are and what we do? Is there something in us that is the ground of salvation? Why one person has salvation and not the other. This is where controversy throughout church history has abounded. There's one group who says the reason God chooses some people and not others is because He knows who would then choose Him. The other group says, no, if it were based on what we would do, then we would have reason to boast in ourselves. So how does Paul address this controversy? Look at how he does with another Old Testament illustration. We have the illustration of Isaac and Ishmael, Abraham's sons. But someone could take that first illustration and they could say the difference was in their moms, right? Isaac was the son of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Ishmael was the son of the servant, Hagar. And so that's why God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. Well, Paul puts an end to that kind of thinking in verse 10 by bringing up Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons. Jacob and Esau had the same mom, and not only did they have the same mom, but they had the same birthday. They were twins, literally born minutes apart. And God chose Jacob, the younger, and he did not choose Esau, the older. Why? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Was Jacob more holy? Was Jacob more righteous than Esau? No, all you have to do is read the account in Genesis. See, Jacob is exactly the kind of person that we would not choose if we were picking out 
a, a list of the most godly people that we wanted on our team. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Paul says before they did anything good or bad, and that's the key here. What was the basis of choosing one and not the other? It was not anything they did. It was not anything about them. Paul is saying it was nothing about Jacob. God's choice was not based on anything he knew about Jacob or Esau. Paul says God chose Jacob and not Esau. Why, verse 11? So that God's purpose of election might continue. What is that? What is God's purpose of election? Well, it has to be that salvation be totally owing to God. Right? The glory of God's free and sovereign grace is the purpose of election. So that no human may boast in his sight. So that no human may say, here's the reason why he chose me. Because look at how good and spiritual and sensitive I am. Ephesians 1.4 says that God predestined us before the creation of the world. This is very similar to what God is saying here in Romans 9 about Jacob and Esau. When God chooses someone, He does not do so based on anything in them. He doesn't wait to see if they'll be useful to Him before He chooses. No, He chooses unconditionally. That is, before creation. Before we do anything good or bad. The phrase in verse 11, notice, is not because of works but because of Him who calls. Do you see how Paul is continually pushing the ground to God? He's continually pushing the ground away from anything us and on God. Not because of the works, but because of Him who calls. This should absolutely demolish all boasting in ourselves. My salvation is not because of anything that I did or that I said. Now listen, I know this is a hard truth, and a myriad of questions abound when we hear this truth. But friends, I just want us to marvel for a second at the glory of God. Marvel at what God is revealing about himself and his ways here. Christian, if you're following Jesus, if you're in Christ, rejoice in the fact that this is what has happened to you. God's purpose of election has continued in you. God chose you not based on anything about you and if that's true that means there's nothing about you that could cause him to strip that election from you if he chose you before you existed based solely according to the purpose of his will then this is where massive assurance rests that our election is as secure as God is faithful to himself because his word cannot and will not fail Notice verse 16. Paul says, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is what theologians call unconditional election. Our salvation is not based, not owing to anything good or bad in us, but only according to the mercy of God. More on that in just a moment, but let, let's address this quotation from Malachi in verse 13. God said, 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we have to be very careful here not to impose our culture's definition of hate onto this statement. In the context of Malachi and in the context here of Romans 9, hatred for Esau means God didn't choose Esau. He elected Jacob by his sovereign love, but God justly allowed Esau to go his own way. God did not choose Esau to receive his promise. In his wisdom, in his sovereign counsel, God accepted Jacob by his grace, but rejected Esau. That's all that we can say it means when God says, I hate Esau. In other words, God is completely sovereign over who he decides to show mercy to with his purpose of election. He is completely sovereign over his purpose of election continuing in our lives. Yes, listen, there is a sense in which God loves everyone and God shows mercy to everyone. They are his creation made in his image. But the Bible is clear that God does not show mercy and love to everyone in the same way. He loves his chosen people with an electing special love. And as Paul says, this should cause us to marvel if we are elected by God in Christ. If this is us, we should marvel. And the way we know we're elected is if we're in Christ, is if we're following Jesus, if he's our Lord and Savior, then we know we are part of this purpose of election. Now, I know I'm not answering every question or solving every mystery about this truth. I'm simply trying to declare what's here in the text. But let me say this. We have to be fine, friends, even if we can't explain every detail of God's ways and God's wonders and salvation. Listen, God is God. He's God. Like, literally, like, let's let him be God. He can do whatever he wants to do, and he can tell us, he has told us, why he does what he does in some ways. We should expect there to be some mystery when us finite humans are thinking about God and his ways. But the point is, humble yourself to believe God's word. Don't sinfully argue with God, sinfully question His truth that He reveals, but rather marvel at, embrace with joy what He reveals. Marvel at His electing love for you if you are in Christ. And that's the final truth about salvation. I want us to see in the text this morning, number three, salvation depends on God's mercy alone. It does not depend on our ethnicity or our privilege. It does not depend on our works or our moral goodness. But it does depend on God's mercy alone. This is what we want to know, Paul. What does salvation depend upon? What's the ultimate ground or basis of our salvation? Well, notice in verse 14 that Paul acknowledges how challenging these truths are. So if you find yourself just not ready to embrace this, you got a friend here in Paul. Look what he does in verse 14. He gives this objection. He knows what we're thinking. He's thought these same things. Now, the most common objection against predestination and election is that it doesn't seem fair. And so Paul raises that objection before we can ask, and he asks, is there injustice on God's part? And of course, the answer is, by no means. No way could God ever be unjust or unrighteous. And so if God alone determines who he saves, we cannot accuse God of being unjust. Why? Why is that true? Why is God not unjust 
in election. Well, notice Paul gives two more Old Testament illustrations. Paul is a master illustrator with the Old Testament. He knew his Old Testament so well. And notice these illustrations he gives. In verse 15, he quotes what God said to Moses. And then in verses 17 and 18, he brings up what God said to Pharaoh. Now, the central point, two times he draws the conclusion from these Old Testament illustrations that God has mercy on whomever he wills. That's the point. God shows mercy to whoever he wants to show mercy to. That's what God said to Moses, and that's the conclusion of hardening Pharaoh's heart. God has sovereign freedom in salvation. He can save anyone he wants, and he can pass over anyone he wants. Now, that can seem arbitrary to us, as if it has no reason, and thus we think it unfair, but just think just a little bit deeper with me. So, as if we haven't already, let's move a little further out in the deeper end of the theological pool. Think about what we're saying for just a second when we say, is that unfair? Is that unjust? Mercy, by its very definition, can never be an obligation. If it's obligation, it's not mercy. So to claim that showing mercy is unfair is to claim that mercy is owed to all. And so it's self-contradictory to say it's unfair for God to have mercy on some and not on all. That would be to say God owes salvation to everyone. And if he owed salvation to everyone and he didn't give salvation to everyone, then he would be unjust. But we know the opposite's true, right? God owes salvation to no one. God owes salvation to no one. God, God is free to give his mercy to whoever he decides to give it to, and that is far from unfair. Friends, don't, I, I encourage you, don't desire fairness from God. If you want fairness, if you want justice, you won't get mercy. You won't get mercy. Fairness would be to offer no one at all mercy. That's fairness because we all deserve no mercy. The basis on which God saves us is not his justice, but his mercy. He freely gives salvation to a multitude of people who do not deserve his mercy, of which I am one. Notice again Paul's declaration in verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We cannot accuse God of unfairness in not extending his mercy to more people than he chooses to extend it to. Again, he is God. And the absolutely mind-blowing truth, friends, and here, here's, where, here's where I need to land. Here's where I need you to embrace. The absolutely mind-blowing truth in all of this is not that God doesn't give his mercy to everyone. That's not the mind-blowing truth. The mind-blowing truth is that he gives it to anyone Here's how John Stott helpfully put it. Oh, hear this, friends. Stott said, the wonder, the wonder is not that some are saved and others not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. If, therefore, anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, 
the credit is God's. Friends, I'm not saying this is easy to understand or grasp. I'm simply saying this is what God has revealed. And the example of Pharaoh makes it even more pointed, does it not? God raised up Pharaoh, a a pagan Egyptian king, to display his power, to proclaim his name. And Paul says that just as God shows mercy on whomever he wants, so God hardens whoever he wants. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for his own sovereign purposes. And we know that was not unjust for God to do that because Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God just gave him over to his desires. God gave Pharaoh what he wanted and it was not unjust to harden him. Again, the question is not why God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but why doesn't he harden all of our hearts? Why doesn't he give us all over to our sinful ways? Why didn't he let us all run headlong to hell and damnation. Why does he show mercy at all? Perhaps a concluding illustration would be helpful. Of course, all illustrations break down at some point, but you understand that. This illustration comes from Dr. James Kennedy, and I I find it to be really helpful in understanding God's ways and God's wonders. Kennedy says, imagine five people who are about to rob a bank. They are friends of mine, I find out what they're about to do, and I plead with them. I beg them not to do it. And finally, they push me out of the way, and they start out. I tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The others go ahead. They rob the bank. A guard is killed. They are captured, convicted, and sentenced to death. The man who is not involved in the robbery goes free. Now I ask you a question, he says. Whose fault was it that the other men died? Now this other man who's walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I'm a free man? No. The only reason he's free is because of me, because I restrained him. Kennedy says, so those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from its beginning to its end. Salvation depends upon God's mercy alone. When I read that illustration this past week, I just laid on the floor, tears in my eyes, and I said, praise you, God, that you tackled me when I was running from your mercy. It's the only reason I am yours, God, because you physically, spiritually tackled me and restrained me from doing what I wanted to do, which was experience your condemnation. Let me conclude with two application thoughts. How should we think about and apply this passage? Number one, allow Paul's heart to challenge you. Allow his heart to challenge you this morning. I'm so thankful that verses 1 through 3 begin this whole section of Romans 9 through 11. Again, we see that Paul is not a cold theologian. These truths inflame his heart in love for others. 
Paul is not only concerned with getting doctrine right. He loves people deeply. This is one of the biggest pushbacks against the doctrine of God's sovereign freedom to save whomever he wills. Many object, if that's true, then why would we ever share the gospel with others or try to evangelize if God already knows who's he going to save, if God's already chosen his elect? Well, Paul was not willing to play games like that. He was not willing to go there. God's sovereign mercy, notice, compelled Paul to love those who are lost because he believed that God has sovereign freedom to save whomever he wills. Listen, church family, I loathe wrong man-centered theology. I loathe it. We should labor to get our theology right. Getting our theology right is super important. Please hear me say that. But you want to know what I equally loathe? Good theology with cold hearts. May it never be at Miller Heights Baptist Church that we get our doctrine right, but we don't love people who, because if we don't love people in the midst of what we believe, we're wrong no matter how right our thinking. May it never be that we love our theology more than we love people, more than we love the glory of God among the nations. Friends, do you love Jesus and do you love people more Or do you love being right? Do you love God and people more than you love your right theology? Do you have sorrow over the lostness that's around you? Does anguish, unceasing anguish, fill your soul when you consider the condemnation your family and friends and neighbors without Christ will experience? If not... Repent of your coldness today and pray that God would engulf you in passion for people to experience this awesome salvation that God has given. Second and finally, acknowledge that there is nothing about you that caused God to save you. Acknowledge today, if you're in Christ, if you're following Jesus, acknowledge today that it was nothing about you that caused God to save you. Listen, it's possible to have a different interpretation of this passage than the one I've tried to explain. And that's totally fine. Listen, it is totally fine to have a different perspective. It's completely cool for us to be a part of the same church and have a different understanding of God's predestination. We can be friends. We can hang out. We can do all the same. It is totally fine. As long as this is the inescapable reality that you don't boast in yourself or your works or your faith or your privileges, that you boast always, only, and ever in the mercy of our God. For that is what unites us, that it is all of God and not uh, ours at all. God alone saves, and thus God gets the glory when anyone is saved. And so does your salvation resound to the glory of God alone? That's the key point. Acknowledge today that there's nothing about you that calls God to save you and praise Him for His work of salvation in your life. Has the Word of God failed? May it never be. God keeps His promises and He keeps His own to the end. Let's cry out to Him now. Father, we thank You for Your sovereign work of grace in our lives. We thank You for the great links you've gone to, to redeem your own, to save us by your grace, and to base all the foundation, all the glory, all the honor on yourself. For we want none of the glory 
We want it all to go to you and to you alone. And so amaze us, God. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might be amazed by your truth today. Help us to be in awe and wonder that you have loved us so well in Jesus. And I pray for those in this room that don't know Jesus. I pray you would open their hearts right now to receive your truth. That you would, by your grace, open their eyes so that they would see Jesus as worth trusting and they would see your amazing mercy shown to them in Jesus. God, do your work in this room and in our hearts. Cast us upon you as we depend upon you for everything. We need you. Jesus, it's your mercy alone. We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing, Jesus, your mercy.